This is the Trails Church Podcast. At the Trails Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel in community and on mission. If you'd like more information about our church, visit our website, thetrails.org. Now here's today's podcast. Open your Bible with me to Psalm chapter 51. It's been our tradition over the first five years of our life together as a new church to spend the summer in the Psalms. I hope we're never far from the book of Psalms, either with our thoughts or our hearts. It truly is a treasure chest of incredible riches. We typically cover a psalm in one sermon because each one stands alone so well, however, There are some psalms that require that we stop and linger a little bit longer. It's a stunning experience to face west and observe the front range of the Rocky Mountains, especially at sunset. The sky is ablaze with orange and pink, framing the beauty and majesty of the mountains. And then, reaching even higher into the atmosphere, are a number of mountains known as 14ers, 14,000-foot-high mountains that I think require a little extra attention. Well, the entire range of the Psalms is absolutely spectacular. This book helps us know God. It teaches us how to pray. Yet from time to time, we reach a Psalm that I believe requires a little extra attention, and it makes sense to spend extra time just to take it all in. Psalm 51 is one of those chapters because of how it instructs us on the vital role of repentance in the life of a Christian. Martin Lloyd-Jones claimed that this chapter was the classic statement in the Old Testament on the question of repentance. And because of its weight, Charles Spurgeon tells us when he studied this psalm, he postponed writing anything on it week after week because he felt his inability to the task. So you can imagine poor me this week trying to think and write on Psalm 51. This is what Spurgeon did write about it. He said, it's a bush burning with fire yet not consumed. And out of it, a voice seemed to cry to me, Draw not closer, take off the sandals from your feet. The psalm is very human. Its cries and sobs are one born of a woman, but it is freighted with an inspiration all divine, as if the great father were putting words into his child's mouth. Such a psalm may be wept over, absorbed into the soul, and exhaled again in devotion. I've entitled our study of Psalm 51, Create in Me a Clean Heart. And what I pray happens over the next four weeks as we search this psalm is that God would speak powerfully to us through it. That the hard-hearted would be brought to genuine repentance and these words might be wept over. 
that those of you who are brokenhearted over your sin, that this psalm might be absorbed into your soul and you might find here language that you could breathe back to God. And that each of us who are in Christ, who don't need to be convinced of our constant need for his mercy, would together breathe deeply as we inhale God's revelation and exhale again with greater devotion. And I pray in all of this that we would grow in both our theology and practice of repentance. If you study every major awakening, renewal, or revival through church history, every one of them are marked by repentance. And I just wonder what God might do in us. I pray he would do something powerful in us. So I begin with this searching question. When is the last time you honestly repented before God? Psalm 51 is the prayer of a soul that is aware of its depth of sin and desperate need for God's grace. These first four verses cast every hope of forgiveness on God's mercy as an act of repentant faith. And these lyrics remind us of the trappings of sin. They instruct us what to do with our sin and teach us how to restore fellowship with God. As we'll hear, the theme of Psalm 51 is not a song of sin. The theme of this song is mercy. I've entitled this first sermon on Psalm 51, Have Mercy on Me. Oh God. We'll divide it into three sections. First, the story behind the song. Second, the heart of God towards sinners. And third, the heart of genuine repentance. So that's where we're headed. Would you stand with me once more as we read Psalm chapter 51 through verse 4. This is God's holy and inerrant word. To the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. First, let us look at the story behind the song. We find the occasion for why the song was written in its heading, also called the superscript. If you're new to the Bible, that's the small print right next to the number 51. These words were part of the original Hebrew manuscript. Sometimes they tell us various bits of information. Here, it's very important to what's happening. We learn first that this song is given to the choir master, so it's not meant just to be sung as a solo performance piece, 
but a song for the whole choir of God's people to sing in worship. We also learn it's part of the collection of the Psalms of David, written by the hand of God through the pen of the king. And then finally, the heading also pinpoints the very moment in David's life that he wrote it. When Nathan the prophet went to him after he, that's David, had gone into Bathsheba. Now, just to warn you, the account mentioned here is not a polite story. Uh, It's it's not uh, a story that people want to come to church and hear sermons about. But there's no way to feel the weight of this song without understanding its backstory. And so let me share it with you. You'll find it recorded in Scripture in 2 Samuel, chapters 11 and 12. That's where you'll find it, which unfolds the life of David. David's life began as an overlooked shepherd boy who has now risen to rule and reign over all of Israel. Yet, when his career and life had been, never been so high, is when he fell so low. While his army is away at conflict, David remained back home in his palace. And one night, he walked out onto his stone balcony overlooking the city, and his eyes land on a beautiful woman named Bathsheba, taking a bath. As soon as he sees her, his heart floods with lust. He asked his servants about her and learned that she was married to one of Israel's mighty warriors who was away at war, a man called Uriah. David doesn't care that she's married. He still asks for her to be brought to him. He committed adultery with Bathsheba and then thought that no one would ever find out until they discover she's pregnant and David is the father. He panicked. He's trying to cover up his sin. So he summoned Uriah back home from war. He encouraged him to spend the night at home with his wife in marital bliss. Uriah refused to enjoy a night with his wife while his men were away in combat. David's anxiety rose. He invited Uriah to a party and intentionally got him drunk, thinking, well, maybe then he'll go home and sleep with his wife before going out to battle. But Uriah refused. Finally, in desperation, David sent a letter carried by Uriah himself back to the battlefield where the captain of the army is instructed to put Uriah on the front line and then at a critical moment in the battle to pull back the forces so that Uriah is exposed and would die. By nightfall, this tragic story of lust and adultery, deception and murder ends as noble Uriah lay dead in the dust of Israel. Bathsheba laid awake, widowed but pregnant. All the while, King David fell asleep, warm in his castle, thinking no one would ever discover his secret sin. After Bathsheba mourned the loss of her husband, David took her as his wife And she bore him a son. It seemed for just a moment that everything had just moved on 
until the final verse of 2 Samuel chapter 11, which sends chills up the spine. This is what it says. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. No one knew David's sin except God. And God revealed David's sin to a man, a prophet, named Nathan. And rather than confronting the king of all of Israel just head on, Nathan decides he will tell David a story, a parable, if you will, of what's happening inside his kingdom. And this is what Nathan said. He said, King David, there are two men in your kingdom. One man is incredibly wealthy. He has countless flock of sheep. The other man is incredibly poor with one little lamb to his name that he's cared for like a child since the day that it was born. This lamb is all that he had and he treasured it. However, the wealthy man invited company over to his house one evening, but instead of taking the countless sheep that belonged to him, he went over, stole the poor man's one precious lamb slaughtered it, and then fed it to his feast. The man's heartbroken, Nathan said. And upon hearing this story, David's heart first burns within him. It burns within him for justice. He demands, this man will surely die. And then his heart changes in that moment when Nathan responds to David, You are the man. And immediately the word of God pierces the heart of David and he is undone. His heart sinks to the floor. He may have fooled the army and his friends and even tricked the family of Uriah, but his God had seen his sin. And now the sin of David, which he thought was concealed, here here we have it recorded in the pages of Scripture. We're reading this 3,000 years later. Imagine if the worst sin that you have ever committed and you were sure that no one knew about was printed this morning above the fold of the Dallas Morning News. The panic you might experience. And then you you pull up social media and it's plastered with the very thing that you've done. Everywhere you look, it's closing in and everyone knows exactly what you're guilty of. It would be absolutely humiliating. Yet the most severe reality of our sin is not other people finding out. The most severe reality of our sin is that it is seen by the holy God. Are there sins in your life that you pretend God doesn't see? Are there sins in your life you've convinced yourself God doesn't see? That's the story behind the song. Now that we understand that, let's begin where the song begins by showing this, the heart of God toward sinners.
This is where we pick up with verse one. Some of you might even feel a little bit anxious in hearing that story or panicking a little over this truth that God knows your sin. But I want to give you a really good reason not to just bolt out the room right now. Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are able not to run from God, but to run to him and to collapse in his love. That's the good news of the gospel. Sinners can come to a holy God based not on what we have done, but based on who he is. And this is exactly what David does. What do you do when you get caught in sin? Well, there are two unshakable reasons we find right here for you and I to run to God instead of to run from him. The first reason is this, is that our God is the God of steadfast love. That's what verse one says. David appeals for God not to deal with him based on his wavering, unsteady, shaking love for God, but according to the steadfast love of God for him. The phrase steadfast love is this Hebrew word chesed, which we've, we've heard shot through the book of Psalms in the first 50 chapters. This wonderful word that communicates God's covenantal, never giving up, never running out love for his people. David knows that everything he'd done was wrong, but he was convinced that he still belongs because he had put his faith in the God of Israel. And for those who have trusted truly in Christ as Savior, let us be reminded even right here in this verse that we also approach God not according to our performance, but according to his steadfast love. Romans chapter 8 is spilling over with hope for those who are sinners in need of a savior. The great crescendo of this chapter, Romans 8, 38 and 39 says, neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation including your sin will be able to separate those who are in Christ from the love of God in Christ. That's really good news. So the first reason, unshakable reason, David runs to God, and we can as well, is because he is the God of steadfast love. The second reason David runs to the Lord is because he is the God of abundant mercy. God of abundant mercy. I want you to remember back with me in our study of Exodus. Just after the dreadful golden calf incident when Israel has broken the covenant. They have sinned so wickedly. Moses goes up to plead with the Lord to forgive these sinful people. This is how God announces who he is to sinful Israel. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. 
Notice the presence in Psalm 51 and Exodus 34 of the echo of God's steadfast love and mercy. Here, David is asking the Lord to show him the same kind of mercy that he showed Israel in the past. The record of all of his sin is laid open in front of God, but David asks the Lord not to read his record against him, but instead to blot it out. He feels so dirty after what he had done. He knows he can't clean himself. He asks the Lord to wash and cleanse him from above. We'll look at that in the coming weeks. He knows he deserves justice. He knows that's right. He says it in verse 4. But instead, he asks for abundant mercy to be shown instead. Haven't all of us who are in Christ had this same experience? The record of our sin laid open in front of the all-seeing God. Yet... Yet he has chosen to blot it out. How did he do that? He blotted out the record of your transgression by the blood of his own son. So that now, Christian, you've been washed clean. Your offense against God covered over by the blood of Christ. Paul gets at this. When he reminds the church in Ephesians 2 verse 4, God being rich in mercy. This is who he is. He is the God rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when, not we were just in our trespasses and sin, but dead in our trespasses. He made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved. The message of the gospel is not that we were accepted by God at our best, but loved by him at our worst. The message of the gospel is not that we were accepted by him at our best, but loved by him at our worst. And brother, sister in Christ, this hasn't changed. Richard Sibbs once wrote, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. What we learn here is the heart of God towards sinners. It beats with love and compassion for his people when they run to him looking for forgiveness of sin. So when you sin, do you run to God or away from him? Do you run away from him like Adam and Eve, looking for fig leaves to cover up what you've done? Or do you run to him like David, based not on what you've done, but according to what God has done for you in Christ? So as we're just rehearsing together God's heart for sinners, let me just ask, do you see God this way? Or do you see him as having a sort of allergic reaction to you when you come to him needing forgiveness? God's heart is not allergic towards sinners. He's like the father in Luke 15 who sees the son coming across the hill and runs out 
welcomes, wraps his arm around, kisses us, and welcomes us home. That's the heart of God towards sinners. And finally, we come to the heart of genuine repentance. David knows that the road back, the the fellowship with God has been severed by his sin. And David knows the road back to restored fellowship with God comes only through genuine, humble repentance. Repentance is at the heart of the Christian message. Repentance is vital to our coming to faith in Christ. Repentant faith. We repent of sin and trust in Jesus as we first come to him. And things don't change. We don't outgrow or outneed our practice of repentance. Yet this is more than just regret over sin. It's turning from sin and turning toward the God of forgiveness. The Lord is in the process of transforming David right here. Transforming him from within. Changing his behavior. Before Nathan spoke the word of God to him, David David was blindly running headfirst into sin. But now God's word has exposed what was there. And his word is changing things in him. Changing his heart. Changing his entire life. Let's just trace together what happens in David in these opening verses as the Lord in his kindness, leads him to repentance. Let's walk this road of repentance with David. The first thing he experiences is conviction of sin. In verse three, he sings, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Now, of course, it's not that David wasn't aware of his sin, There wasn't a single moment as David was choosing lust, pursuing adultery, choosing murder, that he didn't know what he was doing was wrong in the sight of God. He had the law of God right there in his hand. He knew it was wrong. He just didn't care. Sin had blinded him to the spiritual reality of what he was doing. But now, now he sees He's come to an awareness of it five different times. He uses the pronoun my or I. He sees clearly. It wasn't someone else's sin. It's my sin. He's not blame shifting on people around him. No, I did this. Not once does he make excuses. Instead, he feels conviction over his sin. That leads him to the next step which is contrition over sin. We see this in verse four. Verse four, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He calls what he's done evil. The word contrition comes from the Latin word mean to ground to pieces. David's heart before the holy God is ground to pieces over his sin over what he's done against Bathsheba and against Uriah and against all of Israel. He just sinks under all the brokenness that his sin has created. But don't think for a moment he's, he's trying to get himself off the hook or minimize what he did to Bathsheba or what he did to Uriah. Now what he's doing is following the course of his sin as high as it could possibly go. 
realizing that while there's brokenness and sin all around him, ultimately he has sinned, the most grievous sin is that he has committed treason against the king of heaven. And then after being convicted of sin and feeling contrition over what he's done, the next step is confession of sin. He confesses to the Lord in verse four that this is sin. This is wrong. What I've done is evil. Now, you might look at the first four verses we've looked at and said, well, all of this is a confession of sin and you would be right. Perhaps you read the entirety of Psalm 51 in preparing your heart to meet with the Lord this morning. And you might say, well, the whole thing seems like a song of confession, and you would be absolutely right. But before we explore some of the other aspects of this song, we can't miss that this is an act of confession of sin. He feels conviction for his sin. He feels deep regret, remorse, loss, pain, agony over having sinned against his God and those around him. And this leads him not to run from the Lord, but to confess what he's done to God as iniquity, as transgression, as sin. One word won't communicate the entirety of what he's done. And that's where the first four verses leave us. Well, how in the world are we supposed to respond to that then? Here's where I want to just look you in the face, church that I love so much, and just plead with you, in light of your sin, don't run away. Run to him. Stop running away. Run to him. How dark is the thing that you've done? The light of his love cannot cleanse and wash and blot out. And so collectively, I think the thing we do is just trace the steps of David here. We don't try to blame shift the people around us or blame our circumstances or how we're wired. We just look what we've done face in the face And ask God to convict us of that sin. For genuine, spirit-wrought, gospel-infused conviction of sin. And then ask him for a sense of contrition. That we would look at the holiness of God and realize how far our depth of sin. We'll look at this in the coming weeks. As we grow in Christ, we become more and more aware of his holiness. And more and more aware of our sinfulness. And that doesn't lead us to despair because it makes the cross of Christ, which covers that gap, more and more glorious. That's what I want you to see. That's what I want to see with fresh eyes. And it would lead us to confession of sin. Some of you need to weep over this chapter. Others of you need the language of Psalm 51 to be absorbed into your soul so that you have language to tell God how you feel about your sin. And each of us need to learn from this text how to confess our sin to God. Whether you're not a Christian and you know even in this story that you have sinned against a holy God, we invite you even in this very moment 
cry out to him to forgive you. You know that you've done what is evil in the sight of a holy God and you need forgiveness of sin. I plead with you, don't wait another day to come clean before God and to collapse into his grace. And for each of us who are in Christ, not to outgrow our need for repentance and faith, but to grow deeper in them together, praying that God would do a powerful work in us. We need the gospel. And I want the gospel to ring so gloriously loud through our lives. Psalm 51 is the prayer of a soul that is aware of its sin, its desperate need for God's grace. It reminds us of the trappings of sin, what to do when we sin, and how to restore fellowship with God. Through conviction and contrition and confession, to walk the road of David. But as we move forward from this, you'll see so clearly The theme of this song is not sin, but God's undeserved, unrelenting mercy. So Christian, the record of your sin is not recorded against you, but has been blotted out by the blood of Christ. And so let's just collapse in Christ even now and pray together, have mercy on me, O God. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word the light that it shines in our darkness. I pray for each of us that our hearts will be laid low by the reality of your holiness. That You would lift our gaze by the goodness of the gospel. We wouldn't run in shame, but run to you in grace. And I pray that the power of the Holy Spirit would enable this for the glory of Christ and for our joy, amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Trails Church. We hope you have been encouraged, equipped, and edified by time spent together in God's word. And again, if you'd like to find out more about The Trails Church, visit our website, thetrails.org. 